and welcome to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about creating a life that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry, and today I'm talking to Katie Zobel, who is the president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Western Massachusetts. We talk about the magic nature of money, or at least how it feels like magic when you don't feel like you have enough. How money doesn't truly belong to us, we steward it until it can go back into the community, and how to build community with fundraising and philanthropy. We talk about creativity is defined as where you lose yourself and seeking beauty to restore yourself. And then we also talk a bit about never say never, take more risks, and stop being so hard on yourself. Enjoy. Thanks for being on the podcast, Katie. Thanks for having me, Janet. So pick any one of those three and tell me a bit about what you do. Well, maybe the most obvious is um, community. Okay. Does that sound like a good place to start? It does. And interestingly, I think you have some a fair amount of overlap. So yeah. <laughs> maybe. We'll see. <laughs> right? Well, your work is community. And your it's com- true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. So I, I guess... Where I would start is maybe a little bit about who I am, what I do. Is that what you yeah. would be helpful? Okay. Yeah. So I'm the president and CEO of the Community Foundation, which is one of about 800 plus community foundations throughout the country. It's a social movement that started over 100 years ago in Cleveland and really designed to be community-based philanthropy where people in the community and of the community were making both doing the giving and making the decisions jointly with their friends and neighbors and strangers uh, who lived uh, near them in the same region, in the same city, or in the same county. And that sort of spread throughout the country over the last hundred years or more. And in fact, there's now more than 2,000 community foundations outside of the United States. So there's actually more community foundations internationally than there are here domestically. And I think, you know, once you understand sort of how it works, it makes sense. You know, people give where they live and then they help make those decisions. So they're not giving to an organization that then goes off and makes decisions on their own. The Community Foundation of Western Massachusetts has about 125, 130 active volunteers at any one time helping make basically all the decisions about how the money that is given to the community foundation is both invested and stewarded and how it is distributed back into the community. Okay. So like, this is kind of a response to the, I mean, I guess I would think the traditional model was somebody rich has money, is a patron and donor and gives, and that's what the philanthropy is. That's, that's what the early phase of philanthropy as we sort of in the modern day as we know it. But mm. you know, I always like to remind people that philanthropy goes way back to the Greek word that has to do with the love of humanity. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Wow, that's it has, true. It has nothing to do with money. Yeah. So we, we, when we talk about philanthropy in the modern day, we think about Rockefeller. Yeah, yeah. And and Carnegie. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And it all has to do with money, right? I mean, yeah. it, it has to do with big, large sums of money given back into the community somehow. So yes, mm. I do like to talk about the fact that to me, the reason I'm in this work is is really about caring for others and taking care or loving, you know, your fellow 
human mm. is really at the root of what I've been doing or wanting to do or trying to do for a couple of decades. Mm. So that's what you were just said about sort of this. It tends to be in the United States. It tends to be a foundation is started by a corporation or a family. And so there's sort of a very specific focus for that, the, how those dollars are distributed. Whereas with a community foundation, it's really based on what are the community needs and who gets to say what those community needs are. Is it one person or a group of expert staff members? Or is it, in, in the case of the Community Foundation of Western Massachusetts, it's both expert staff in concert with community members. Right. And and they make the final decision, actually. Uh, we mm. help support them and provide them with the structure and all of that, but they really make those decisions. So I get to do that every day. I get to work with about 20 staff colleagues of mine, and we're raising about 12 to $13 million a year from Hamden, Hampshire, and Franklin counties here in our Pioneer Valley of Western Massachusetts. And, and then we distribute it depends, but it's anywhere between seven, eight, nine million dollars a year back into the community through two, basically two major ways: grants to nonprofits and scholarships to students who live locally who are going to college. Okay, all right. So that's about eight hundred students each year receive some form of a scholarship or an interest-free loan from the community foundation to further their education beyond high school. Ah, yeah. So that's. You know, my, I guess going back to the your question around community, that to me, I've been at the Community Foundation for 13 years and I've been the starting my seventh year as president. And I really like the Community Foundation model because it's, I think of it as like a Swiss army knife. There's a lot of different tools at our disposal in the Community Foundation world. And really depending upon the need of the community or the need of the person who's being generous we have all these different tools to help people be more effective in giving their money away, but also be more effective in putting that money to use for the community. And, you know, I see community very hyper-local, right? neighborhood by neighborhood, but also town and county and kind of this region is sort of how I, I'm, I'm looking at community on a daily basis. Now, is it hard to track, like, the effectiveness? Is it hard to track, like how the money was used. I often wonder about that. It's so hard. Well, it's not hard to track how the money was used, but it is pretty hard, uh, pretty difficult, I'd say, and, but not impossible to measure the effectiveness of that investment. Yeah. You have to be really thoughtful in advance of making that distribution of money in partnership with the nonprofit or you know, a collaboration of some sort of partnership or collaboration. And, and you have to sort of be really clear at identifying what is the need? Is it measurable? How can we measure it? And how can we measure if it changed in some way, if it was ameliorated or if it was, if it stayed the same or got worse? Right. Oh forbid. God. But that does happen. And it's really important in doing this work. Oftentimes we're, we're testing new models and piloting things and trying new things mostly because the government actually doesn't love to, they like tried and true models. So a lot of times in, in philanthropy, we have these sort of obligation to try things and test things out and, and learn from it and learn mm. what works and what doesn't work. So it's really important to measure 
as best you can. Sometimes that's quantitative and sometimes it's qualitative. Mm. And I like it when it's both because the most intractable problems that we face in our society, you know, they wouldn't be those problems if we could easily measure and change, you know, if we yeah. knew what to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's not really about always, it's it's almost never about more and more money. You know, it's right. really about how you use that money. And yeah. execution. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's what I wondered about, like the, how difficult it is to measure and how difficult it is to develop execution. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's so key and it's so, I don't know, it's so crucial. And yet, I don't know, it's hard to describe what it is. It's hard to say how to do it. (laughs) Well, and it's, you know, in our, I think in our culture, we have done so much around data gathering and measuring, Mm. measuring what we can, what data we can gather, as opposed to really identifying maybe even new ways to evaluate. So, so sometimes right. we, you know, it's, it's like the, the testing issues in education, we've been right. able to test like crazy, but are we really gauging mastery, you know, mastery, mastery, yeah. and critical thinking skills and, and all kinds of other important qualities and skills that we want to develop? It's, yeah. it's, it is very difficult. And I think the other thing you're talking about in terms of as execution is we also, as a culture, I think really hesitate to step wrong and do something that doesn't work, even though we know intellectually, we've been told over and over again, and there are many, many examples that you learn so much more from failure and from making a mistake. In fact, it's really the the way you learn. If you already knew it, you didn't learn anything. Right. (laughs) Right. So execution is easy to do if you know you're going to get it right. You know, so that often gets, those, those, projects and programs get executed well. It's the ones that you're, mm, I'm not really sure. And I think that's really the hard part. And believe me, I mean, I'm as guilty of that as is the community foundation. You know, we we want to use the money we've been entrusted with wisely. Right. And, but as a society, we need to embrace more. And I think maybe we are with this entrepreneurial culture rising, but yeah, em- embrace the failure more. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask about that, whether or not you have kind of a uh, an incubator sort of thing happening or in the works. When you say incubator, are you... Are you Small, speak- risky projects where yes. the money is yes. risked and yeah. could be yeah. lost, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, could indicate a direction. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we have been doing more of that. We have a a grant program called Innovation that's designed and it will continue to evolve, but really designed to get a new idea, give some, some resources to get an idea off the ground in terms of planning. And Mm. then if through that planning process, it continues to show promise. And it's, it's sort of like early stage, you know, angel capital. It's like, let's give you this grant to get things, you know, worked out. And then if it continues to show promise to get sort of that execution or implementation, but over, we, we've changed our model from sort of a one-time grant to, to multi-year because we know that to do something new like that and to test it and pivot and evolve and change, you, you know, it takes time. So yeah. Yeah. it can't, it's not a one year and done kind of deal. So we are trying that. Yes. That's interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. And how did you get, like I said, this is a good overlap for you because your work is community. How did you get there? What did you, what, what brought you there? <laughs> oh, you know, the happenstance <laughs> of life and, and accidental, the accidental tourist, um, which you know about. <laughs> yeah. I, that's a very good question because I, you know, it just, one thing led to another. I, I started out interested in teaching and education. And one of my first jobs was teaching a writing class in a, the jail that was formerly located in Springfield, now in Ludlow. Ah. You know, and it occurred to me while I was teaching, it was all men at the time. And I was, you know, in my very mid twenties, early mid twenties, I thought, oh gosh, you know, something is, by the time these guys are here, we've missed all these other opportunities to change the trajectory. And what did we do wrong? And, you know, it's sort of that right. kind of idealistic, yeah. like thinking, because many of them, it was, you know, it was minor and petty kind of crimes, but, it, you know, one after another, I'd led them to, you know, a really difficult place mm. without much hope. And that felt not great. So I did a lot of other work in the nonprofit temporary work in for public television. And then I ended up getting a job there, hmm. you know, sort of making ends meet. But then it was like, oh, this is an interesting kind of approach. You know, public television, it's, you know, we give you the product. And then for those who are able to pay, you know, it's, it's sort of we give away something. And then if you if you're if you're enjoying it, and you're able to pay, <laughs> you pay us. So I kind of like that model. I was like, this is really interesting. And I learned fundraising through public television. And then I went on to work in higher education at Amherst College and, and, you know, learned more about development and fundraising. And mm. so everything from direct mail to major gift fundraising, et cetera. And I loved what I did in both of those places, but felt like I was kind of um, distant from the community in, in which I lived, you know, sort of in public television, it was kind of like, well, I, you know, it's this audience I can't really see right. out there that's watching and <laughs> and appreciating and learning from. And then with with Amherst, you know, these alum alumni who are all around the world, and it felt a little, you know, sort of I don't know, I felt distant from the actual work and the cause. Mm. So when I, I I got a temporary three month job at the Community Foundation, and I a friend of mine was the president at the time. He needed somebody for a temporary position. And I said, well, that's fine, but I, you know, I'm not staying. So just get that out of your head. And I, I readily say this to people. I mean, I, I thought I'm never going to stay in a foundation. That sounds so boring. You know, <laughs> like I, I had this image in my mind of, of, you know, sort of the upper crusty kind of dry, right. um, approach to, I don't know where I got that from. I mean, some sort of, <laughs> probably some movie or something, <laughs> but you know, I had no experience. So of course I made these assumptions. And once I got in there, I realized, oh my gosh, this is kind of radical. Like they're raising money from people who live in this community. And then they're just turning it over and saying like, okay, you guys decide how, who gets it. And right. when you, when you do that, people are very serious about it. And they, they take great care and they're incredibly thoughtful. And you bring this diverse cross-section of the community with all these different perspectives and experiences and ages and ethnicity. And, and it, somehow the end result is kind of 
I, I, it's just extraordinary to me. It's really, you know, it's not perfect. It can be very messy. I always tell people that when, you know, especially my other foundation colleagues, um, that this is a really inefficient, messy way to do this work. (laughs) It's incredibly inefficient, but it, it reflects my values. And I really embrace this notion that the community can make good decisions if they're, if it's done together, Mm. you know, with a group of people. So when I saw that going on, I thought, I'd like to stay here. And I was raising my two children with my husband at the time, but I was trying to figure out how to have that, this kind of cool job there, but not work 60 hours a week. Right. So at the end of, toward the end of the three month temporary assignment, I inquired with the president, you know, what, what do you think of this idea of a job share? And he said, well, why don't you, you know, give me a proposal? Oh, brilliant. So I thought, okay, well, I could have proposed this, but I have no idea who I'd share the job with. Right. So I, I started scrambling to think about people. And I, I had a, a colleague who I had worked with at Amherst College, who was now at Mass Mutual or at that time. And she had a young child. And I said, what do you think this idea it would be kind of cool? We could work together, but you know, you'd work three days, I'd work three days, we'd overlap for one day. And, um, oh, that's you know, nice. how, how might this work? And she just, Jumped, jumped at it. Yeah. She had done some. That's the dream. Yeah, when you have kids. <laughs> totally, because you get this really interesting work, and it is part time, but it doesn't feel part time. You right, know, you, you feel like it's um, can yeah. hand off the work. Is so that that was the beauty of it. You you had a trusted um, professional colleague that you just handed the work off to when you were, and then they continued it on for you, and yeah. then you got back, and it had it had moved forward. So that was great. I mean, I always tell people we did that for eight years and people are like, oh my God, that's incredible. And, and I said, it was great. She had another baby. So I was able to work during her maternity leave and it was was very seamless. And then in the summertime, she came up with this brilliant idea. Instead of each of us working three days a week, why don't each of us work full time for a month? Oh my God. And then take the month off so that you're, you know, you put your kid, you know, yeah. you put your kids off into camp or whatever. And you like, you don't want to, you can't afford to do it for three days a week, you know? Right. You, so that worked really well for balancing that, you know, having this really interesting job, but also getting God, time. Love, I would love to see that be a model. Like, yeah, that is just, that really is the brass ring, you know? <laughs> well, it is. And I, I, I have to say, two things about it. One is people who've interviewed me and like, you know, there's somebody writing a book on job sharing who interviewed us. And Mm. I said, well, the thing that people always get, they, people get excited and then they realize, oh, but I only get half the salary. You know, it's like, it still is a part-time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's half the salary of a professional salary. And that's really different than every other kind of part-time job, which is really like, you know, okay, well, I guess you can get retail or, you know. Right, right. No, um, you can do your hours, right? Yeah. And, More and, hourly. And you still stay, I mean, you still stay in the professional world. I mean, kind of imagine a world where, yeah, I don't know, 30%, 25% of all jobs allow this. Wow. Would that ever, yeah. that would leave women in so strongly positioned to be leaders, right? Well, like you, right? You can get to a powerful position. You can get to a leadership position, that you can't do if you opt out and 
work retail. Well, right. it's much. It is absolutely hard. Much harder. You're you're right to sort of get off the ramp and then get back on. And mm. and I'd say for men too, because True. you know this this is this is it's a model that can work. It has to be the right pair. That is like the yeah. most important thing. We were actually quite complementary. We were, we were opposites in a lot of ways, but we had a, we already had a trusted relationship. We knew how each other worked. And we invested a great deal of time and energy around developing a communication sort of process for making sure that we communicated everything mm. so that it was seamless for the organization. But the other piece about it is you get half the salary, but the organization gets two brains. Right. It gets, you know, two right. personalities and two, you know, sort of approaches and perspectives. So that ends up being a much richer, I mean, you know, the real opportunity for them. The, 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 I don't want to say the real, I said the real, but I don't mean the real, but the deeper meaning of diversity, more mm-hmm. and more people with more and more different perspectives. Right. That's just brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So that worked. It was incredible. I'm grateful to the, the former president and to the trustees at the time who I think, you know, many of them were really, really skeptical. In fact, I know they were. Mm. I, I know many of them raised concerns like, well, how are, what, you know, what are their, what's the title going to be? And and we said, well, we'll just share the title. And they said, oh, that, <laughs> that won't, how will that work? And, and won't it be competitive? And won't they, you know, <laughs> it was a lot, you know, there was a lot of, um, concern. And I, the, the, the chair of the trustees at the time was Carol Leary, who's the president of Baypath University. And she said, I, I mean, I just so grateful to her because she's, it's, it's been reported that she said at a meeting, you know, this is, this is not, this is a no brainer. We're going to get two for the price of one. Right. And yeah. what have we got to lose? This could work out really well. And it, and it did. Right. Well, and there's something to be said. And there's actually, there's much to be said. And I hope this whole, the book that they're writing about this has it. Happy employees are an unbelievably valuable resource. Happy, totally. un- unburnt out employees. So when you have people who can actually go to the kids game or go to the play and and work this halftime job and remain professionally active, I mean, everything about that makes you stay longer, makes you more engaged. I mean, you know what I mean? So it's not even two for one. You're actually getting kind of like, I don't know, 75 or 80% versus your employee that's there full time, but is just so torn apart or disengaged. You know what I mean? It's you're, you're, you're not getting, you're not even getting one for that one for one when you have that. No, that, that is so true. I mean, there, there's so there's multi-layer benefit because, you know, I would get I would, let's say I worked, we, we, we switched some years, but say I worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we overlapped on Wednesday to have that seamless transition. And then I would have Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. So, you, you know, right. really, you, you know, get your mind out of it. You, you're not worried. You're not taking phone calls. You're not trying to eke out some emails yeah. here, there and everywhere while you're watching a soccer game or yeah. something. Yeah. So you felt really away and yet the work didn't stop. The right. work continued. Right which, you know, that's also important. And it does, it did make me a much more grateful employee. Right. That's what I was thinking. And I don't know, gratitude is, is such a generous emotion to have. And it's really, it's really painful, actually, when you work for a place that you 
have dedication to a mission and find yourself souring, you know, and found your, find yourself like less and less engaged in trying to get out of there. So there's, it's powerful to say, look, what have we got to lose? Why not at least try it? Cause we'll get two for the price of one, but I, I suspect they got considerably more than two for the price of one. So I think that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So that really kind of launched me into this whole community foundation world. And, you know, so I, I, I think, I mean, I do think of community in other ways too, you know, not mm-hmm. just my job. I also think of community in, in small ways, like where my children go to school as a community and where, you know, my, I belong to a CSA farm in right. my, that's in my neighborhood. So that's sort of like this kind of microcosm that happens right here in my neighborhood. That's farm and neighbors. That's kind of fun. So all your food comes from my farm down the block. Yeah. Uh, well, I wouldn't, maybe not all of it, well, but quite a, a bit of it of between, uh, between June and November. All, yeah. all your kale comes from <laughs> <laughs> and potatoes and yeah, my kale and potato soup. Oh, that's nice. It, yeah. You know, I've been to a hundred mile meals before. It's kind of nice to be like, no, the one mile meal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my 50 step meal or whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's and so, and that is truly a, a little mini community. My both of my kids have worked there throughout their high school years and even into college, and been sort of part of the farm. And you know, I also I go to Grace Episcopal Church, and I, that is also a, a, right. a tiny little community for yeah. me and for my family. And sometimes I think about when I go into the grocery store and I my worlds collide, you know, my communities collide, you know, when you see somebody you go, wait, where do I know you? This isn't quite, you're not in the right place or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're out of context. But I love that. I love it because that's makes the world smaller. Well, and you're in such an interesting position. I was thinking about this as you were talking that the community foundation is, um, I may have even said it earlier before we started recording, but it's kind of a metaphysical. It's a, you're a nonprofit in charge that, that not in charge of you're a nonprofit, (laughs) you're a nonprofit that assists that, uh, enables a ton of other nonprofits. You're sort of in nonprofit inception. Yeah. At Community yeah. Foundation. So that's kind of an interesting place to be too, sort of backstage of backstage. Yeah, that it does give you a different having volunteered for and worked for non smaller nonprofits and not a funder, it does give you a very different vantage point and perspective. And I would say it's important for any of us not to rest on that one perspective. True. Um yeah. Because I think it's valuable and it's valuable to bring it to the local nonprofit sector. And it's important to have the sector and the grassroots and sort of the, the, the organizations also providing input into the community foundation. So it's kind of, it is a meta experience in some ways, but it's also, I try to, what is the, it's the tree. I don't, I don't know my, how it works, but the xylem, the flow, you know, the, oh, the yeah. tree metaphor of like yeah. up and down, it's sort yeah. of that kind of idea. Like, like the sap and the, yeah, yeah. Things are coming in and then going out and coming in and going out. And that's what well, I, that's, it's. Well, that's really interesting too. Cause I put a little star here before when you were talking about being in development and, um, and fundraising and things. Mm. And I was thinking, you know, I think that's part of the funny thing about how we see 
foundations or how we see fundraising is this sense of, well, those are the money people. Like, Mm -hmm. like they're not, it's funny because they, they, you enable the mission to happen, but feel sort of, there's a, there's a big cultural divide between money and art. There's a big cultural divide between money as something dirty or money as something that's targeted and you just acquire it and can't, Mm. and can't give it up. And Mm -hmm. then, and then also like targets and things. And then also money as like almost a one way thing. Whereas in fact it has, it's blood. It has to, it has to, or air, it has to come in and go out. (laughs) Totally. That's how how things stay alive. It's fun. It's almost like we've made money so magical that it's like everybody that collects it must be a dragon or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. If you don't, if you have little of it, it means, you know, you don't have those same magical powers, which is so not. It's interesting. I, I, I was working once with a very elderly man who had built his business locally. Actually, I think his father had started it and then he and his brother had continued it and they sold the business. And he said, you know, I, we sold the business when I was about to retire. And he said, I I was stunned at the amount of money I was paid to sell the business. And he said, but what I realized is that this money doesn't belong to me. This came from Mm. the people who worked here. It came from the community. We built it up. So eventually it's all going back to the community and he's made a, a commitment, a bequest and, you know, in his will to give the money back to the community when he oh, nice. passes. So he saw it the same way that you were talking about, sort of that blood is sort of like, it's got to, it maybe comes in and I happen to be stewarding it for this amount of time, but it's going back right. into, you know, I'm folding it back into the community. Right. Um, so that happens when people give that to their children, you know, give their wealth to their children and right. um, grandchildren, which is a little bit of a tighter closed system. I mean, it's still, you know, you can't take it with you. So it's still, my gold casket is out. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it's really not that magical, <laughs> but that the idea of, of thinking about money is something that you're just taking care of for the time being and that you then have, you know, want to desire to give it back to where, you know, whence it came. I mean, that's the, I think to to me, that's the definition of philanthropy. You know, you're caring for some, something, but you're doing it because you want it to then take care of people later and you just, you're taking care of others that way. Well, yeah. And that, and the more robust that circulation is, I mean, the better off everybody is really. Right. You know, that's very interesting. Uh, I've gotten, I've got, you know, I, I grew up rigorously Catholic. And so mm-hmm. they shortened that whole uh, <laughs> money is money is the root of all evil. It, when in fact, it's love of money is the root of all evil. But then also it, it's, and especially getting a business degree last year, I, it's really been interesting to sort of take the time to stop and think about what on earth it is. You know, (laughs) what is money? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? What's its meaning? Why do we think we know what it is? Why do we, you know, react the way we do to it? It's, it's a more embarrassing topic than sex. It's, it's just a strange, you know, I I don't know. It's a, it's a strange magical thing in this, maybe all cultures, but in this culture, and it really is like, we're talking about this kind of thing with fundraising and stuff like that is, you know, having worked in some nonprofits it takes on this massive shadow almost of like, 
is it going to come in? What do we do with it? We, we, you know, we can't, we almost can't circulate it when we get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. So you're so just, well, that, I think that also goes back to the very erroneous notion that a nonprofit is supposed to have a balanced budget and make no profit. Right. You right. know, you, you actually, that isn't really the idea. The idea is that you're not providing profit to those who are invested in you. Right. You're providing profit back to the community, but you are supposed to make the most money you can and you are supposed to to sort of really think of yourself as a, you know, a A profit generating business. Yes. Entrepreneurial business. Yeah. 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 That is a massive mind shift for many, 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 I'm going to say most people. <laughs> well, it is. And, and we, we sort of design everything or we have in the past and just the name nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's saying it's, it's a tax exempt organization is what I, I'm always like, okay, you're just tax exempt it means you don't pay taxes, but yeah. you are supposed to be making money here and reinvesting in yourself and reinvesting in the community. I and mean, that's the, that's yeah. the idea. I use not for profit, but it's the same thing. And in fact, it leads to a lot of pain because that mindset ends up meaning that the people that work there can't afford to work there a lot of times, you know, and they're expected to be paid back by dedication to the mission, but that's right. why they went there, you know, <laughs> and it becomes... It's a huge issue. No, yeah. agreed. I mean, yeah. And there are many, many factors to that and, yeah. you know, sort of what we value as a society and, you know, willingness to pay for X, Y, or Z, but I, or give to, I mean, it's just, there's many, many outlying factors, but I, I do like to start by reminding myself and reminding others that, you know, we're, this is a tax exempt, tax exempt. Yeah. That's you know, this is, yeah, it's a community <laughs> building. Yes. You're piece. social. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you could call it, you call the third sector, the social sector, you're, yeah. you, whatever you would like to call it, but stop saying nonprofit because yeah. you'll just start <laughs> like, it's the, you know, you sort of predestine yourself to make no profit and yeah. 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 It's almost like, come it, in. it's almost like it needs another word. Yeah, if you can, if you can come up with that, and you are very clever, so I, I, I challenge you to come up with. That's my challenge. Yeah, find some word. It would be great. I mean, I think the whole sector would be grateful to, um, to you. Be so funny. it's it so can't be, be it can't be it. The, the magical dragon um, no no the horde <laughs> <laughs> smog <laughs> we can't be out of Tolkien <laughs> so um so let me ask you what do you do for like to recharge yourself what kind of creative things do you do I was thinking about I knew you were going to ask this question <laughs> I thought what the heck am I and I I have to say I'll tell you and be very honest with your listeners that I, this is a work in progress. It's a broad definition, by the way. It's self-defined. I know. know. And, and I do think it's absolute, I, each day and month and year that goes by in this, you know, sort of hard work I do every day, I really invest myself. I know how important it is to take time away and to recharge. And I, I don't do enough of it. I don't do it as planfully. I think that's the key is to plan, to ensure that you do it, you plan for it. And so I do take all of my vacation and I encourage all of my (laughs) colleagues at the community foundation to take vacation in all of it because it's there for that reason. Yeah. 
I'm a big gardener and I Mm -hmm. hike a lot. I find nature to be the place where I restore some, something spiritually. And also it's a chance for my mind to just, it's very meditative Mm -hmm. and I can Mm -hmm. sort of, I can get rid of a lot of thoughts and bring in the beauty of my surroundings. And that really recharges me. So I try to do that daily. It maybe doesn't happen every day to be outside, you know, to be, Mm. to walk, to hike or to, to be, and I use the term, I mean, I'm not a master gardener by any means, but I'm, I find it a very creative process of like, I'm going to dig this up. I'm going to split these. I'm going to move these around. I'm going to yeah. put this thing, you know, sculpture over here and I'm going to create something out of willow tree, this and that. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's a place where I can, I think of creativity as where do you, where do you lose yourself? Yeah. Where do you, where's flow? Where, yeah. It's like, Oh, I didn't realize three hours just went by. Mm. And that's definitely where it is for me outside. Mm. So, you know, but I think the other thing is I, I like to read and I love, I, I have a good friend who talks about movie therapy. I do love to go to the movies. <laughs> really, it does bring me away from things um, completely. Whatever. It's, you know, going to see a film or to see a play or to to the to a museum that does also, I think just, you know, I'm seeking beauty all the time and that does oh, restore. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any ambitions? Is there anything like you want to at some point take the time to master? I mean, especially now because your kids are older. Is there anything like, like I've always wanted to learn how to play accordion or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So many things. <laughs> There's so many things. I, I think like, Oh, I'm going to have time to, you know, I'd love to speak another language fluently like Spanish. Mm. Um, so I, th- I think a lot about, Oh, when can I, how, how can I immerse myself and when can I do that and what courses can I take? And I've done a tiny bit of that. That would be a, a lifelong ambition I've been sort of putting off. I journal quite a bit and write periodically. And for, I mean, I'm writing constantly in my job. So, right. you know, it's sometimes I, you know, I get home or I'm up in the morning. And I think like, Oh, I can't, <laughs> I can't <laughs> put pen to paper. But when I do, I think, wow, I, I really enjoy this. And maybe, if I had more time, you know, that yeah. those, that comes to my mind. I, I liked your, your solution to writing a book. I thought, Oh, right. that, that could be my new ambition. Go somewhere, <laughs> go somewhere for two to three months and get it done. That's the podcast that I did with Alex, Allison Jean Lester. She cracked that. Cause I went and did it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really inspired and, and potentially I could learn my other language doing it. Right. <laughs> She's a prolific writer. So <laughs> it's definitely a solution. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I, I loved that idea. So I think oh, those, those really would be good. a couple of things I I would love to, to do. And then there are, there are places I want to, to hike. And so I've been thinking, plotting that out, you know, yeah, sort of yeah, when, yeah. when can it, cause uh, many of the things I'd like to do take longer than your week's vacation, vacation or, yeah, yeah. or, or a long weekend. You'd have to do a little, a little mini sabbatical or something like right, that. Where, right. whereabouts, where would you like to, where are some places that would be like hiking destinations? I mean, I'd love to be, I've, I've done a little bit of hiking in, the Alps and I'd love to go back to, yeah, both French and Swiss, but you know, my heart is in the West United States and Canada. I just, those mountains are just incredible to me. I've never been to the 
Sierras, I'd love to do that. My dad was uh, a huge Appalachian Trail fan and hiked all of the trail in Connecticut and Massachusetts and a lot of other places. And I thought, oh, I'd love to do that, you know, oh, wow. in sections. I don't, I don't know if I'd ever be able to do it all at once, but there are lots of Yeah, um, it turns out that's south. super flexible. I don't know. I, I come from a family that's got distorted views on this stuff. And I always thought, like, it only counts if you start at the beginning totally. and you end in Maine. And then I read Bill Bryson's book, and he was like, yeah, they went home. And then three months later, a friend of mine and I went out to somewhere else. <laughs> I was like, you can do that, I guess? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Why, Why not? not? Nobody exactly. else needs to define it. I was, like, really surprised when I read it how much that, like, astonished me. Like, oh, I remember reading that too. And I, I, I mean, my, that was a big, I remember my mom taking me to the public library in my hometown. It had to have been in the late mid to late seventies. And there was a man speaking about having just walked the Appalachian trail. And we thought this was just like crazy and outrageous. And, you know, he was like from another planet, this guy who took time off of work and he left his job (laughs) and he, and I do, I remember just being slack jawed and just thinking like, this is just incredible. And it's kind of been out there. I've been interested, but that idea of starting, you know, in Georgia and, and hiking to Maine and that's it. But I'm like, oh, maybe I could, you know, yeah, I could do it in sections. In little bits. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's lovely. Well, so one thing that I've, uh, that I kind of ask people a lot of times at the end is what would you tell your younger self? And then one of my guests had a really great idea, which was, what would I like my older self to tell me? And so <laughs> now I leave those up in the air for people. <laughs> so you can, wow. you can pick which direction you want that time machine to go. <laughs> oh, goodness. I've always thought about, you know, that time traveling to the future. And it's, I think of it with much trepidation. So I think I'll go to my, what I, I wish I had been, I don't know if anyone sort of younger can take this advice though. The, that's the whole issue with this question. Like, are you, are you really able to, you know, hear it? Yeah. You would, it? you would listen to yourself pretty much like know. whatever you knew. Yeah. <laughs> It was my one of my sisters in law were older than me said they were having children I didn't have children and she and she said you know the one thing I remember or one thing I've learned as a new mother is never say never and I said mm. oh, what do you you know what do you mean she said well never say things like my counter will never be sticky and <laughs> And I thought, yeah, whatever. But, but this is literally my next thought was like, but my car won't have problems in it. For <laughs> so that's my point about yeah. could you really listen to the advice? But I, you know, I look back on that and laugh because, of course, yeah, everything she said happened, and I just learned that lesson over and over again that you just you, you just never say never because it can happen to you. <laughs> I like that. And I like that the steaks are like sticky counters and crumbs. Yeah. Those, yeah. those yeah. are good steaks. <laughs> yeah. I think the other piece of advice someone did give me, and I've tried to take it to heart, but have been, uh, I would say inconsistent is don't be so hard on yourself. Mm. 
really embrace what we were talking about earlier about um, taking risks and failing. I think I have been less of a risk taker than maybe I might have been had I listened to that advice, you know, sort of just it's okay and you don't have to be harsh with yourself when something doesn't go quite right. And right. and that the difference you can choose, you know, that that was what the person's advice was. You actually can you can make the choice of saying, well, that was so stupid and that's your fault. And why did you do that? And you, you should have known better. Right. Or you could say, wow, that hurts and it's painful, but this is what I've learned and this is how I'm going to get through this. And, yeah. you know, it's yeah. just a different frame. And I yeah. don't think I've done that consistently for sure, but that advice has been on my mind a lot yeah. through the years. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard not to be hard on yourself. I have to say (laughs) it's really really hard. hard. It's really, I mean, everything in our society sets us up to, to say, you know, you're not living up, uh, you're not measuring up, you're not, um, but yeah. And it's your fault and you should be ashamed of that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You so. could have made a different choice. This, it would have been better. You, you saw the signs, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. I mean, you could, but that inner voice cultivating that more gentle, it's, it's not even, I sort of say that it's more about being gentle and kind and to kind. yourself as a, yeah. Yeah. As opposed to being sugarcoating, like, don't worry about a thing. You're right. you're totally great. You're the best anyway. I mean, right. that's garbage. Just be real, right. but be gentle. Right, right, right. Well, and learn from it. Like, it, it, I think when you just sort of brush it off and say, oh, no, you're wonderful anyway, you haven't actually learned anything from it. So, but sort of learn kindly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, yeah, the, I, um, there's, I heard the phrase, you can be lovingly critical. You can mm. still say, here's what you learned. Here's what you could have done differently, but you can do it in a way that's not brutal yeah. and not harsh and not debilitating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's it's hard though. It is hard. It's hard work. That's the next work. Yeah. 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 And, it's, and that's that piece of, I gave you all that caveat. It's like, well, and I haven't done it consistently. You know, it's like right? falling into that same trap. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And I didn't even notice it until you just said it. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> you is, don't have is... to. Katie, you don't have to do it consistently. It's all good. <laughs> How about when you did do it? When you that? did that do it. Good. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was great. <laughs> I know. It's. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me, Janet, because I it just, as you know, I had said no, because I was like, I don't, this feels funny to me talking about myself, <laughs> but, but that idea of sharing experience, yeah, you know, tapping into others shared ex- and having that shared and learning from each other, I think is so important. So good for you for doing this and for, and for sharing it. Every podcast, I like pick up stuff that's like, oh no, that's, that is staying with me. That is totally <laughs> staying with me. So thank you. This has been great, Katie. Thanks for coming out and taking the time. Total pleasure. Thank you. I just want to thank Katie Zobel for being my guest today. I had such a great conversation with her and the idea of fundraising as being something that is attached to philanthropy and that philanthropy is a way of connecting us all has really stuck with me and I appreciate her deep thinking on the subject. Join me next time at 9 to Thrive. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. 
be sure to visit working9tothrive.com. That's with the number nine to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter at 9 to Thrive and Facebook at Working 9 to Thrive. Thanks for listening.